3: It's the Wonky Show. We're talking Scottish highest results, admissions and clearing in a big week for the sector and young people around the UK as results are published.
0: It does seem that there has been really clearly a disproportionate downgrading compared to upgrading. So 93% of grades have been changed down and 6% have gone up. And that indicates that the SQA thinks that there was overestimation of candidate potential by teachers And this is bound to generate quite a lot of appeals. And it does look, on the face of it, as if
3: Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's Higher Education News Policy Analysis. And I'm pleased to say this week's show is produced in association with UCAS. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach. And joining me to help unravel the yarn of higher education missions, I have three Brilliant guests in St Andrews. It's Sally Mapstone, Principal of the University of St Andrews. Sally, tell us something. That gave you some cheer this week?
0: Well I kind of want to say that what gave me some cheer this week was that I did my first uh, one-to-one socially distanced meeting in person for four months and it felt fantastic to interact with a, a live human without worrying if they were on mute or not <laughs> uh, but if, in truth the highlight of the week has to be admissions. Faced with the pandemic students want to come to university. Our applications at St Andrews are up this year as are our acceptances. Deferral requests are currently down of of course, we have to wait to see who actually turns up in a few weeks. But so far, so good, and where we are generates a terrific sense of positivity and common endeavour.
3: And in Cheltenham, it's Claire Marchant, uh, Ucas chief executive. Claire, tell us uh, something that gave you some cheer this week.
0: Um, I suppose uh,
4: on Tuesday, just seeing the rise in, in nursing um, entrance, I think was um, uh, joyful. Particularly for you know, it makes you reflect on the last four or five months and the and the value the NHS um, uh, bring and the, the respect and esteem within which they've held attracting all of those uh, young and mature students into the profession. Um, I suppose a slightly more insular one would be uh, to have the team at some degree uh, back in the building, although very, very limited, and to see, uh, like Sally, you know, some, some element of socially distanced face-to-face. Uh, we are human beings. Uh, we like to interact uh, not just over computers. So
3: uh, that was joyous as well. And from Team Monkey, it's our very own editor, Debbie McVitie. Uh, Debbie, something that uh, made you smile this week? Uh,
2: well, in the continued theme of, of uh, socially distanced Human interaction. I had occasion to visit a lavender farm this week because, of course, we're all looking for outdoor activities we can do while the, while the weather lasts. Um, and and I can thoroughly recommend it. It's a delightful way to spend an afternoon.
3: Right. So this week we had the Scottish Higher's results. And uh, next week, of course, it's A-level results day. Uh, Claire, talk us through the, the headlines from the from the results this week.
4: So I think you know Tuesday overwhelmingly uh, positive um, in the in terms of looking at the numbers. Um, both those students um, from Scotland who've been accepted into to University or College um, was slightly up, and also. Um, to see Scottish students going to Scottish universities, um, I thought was very, very encouraging. Um, And I I think, you know, in in a pandemic, it's easy to say, well, this is different and there are issues because of things like calculated grades and to lose some of those real signs of positive progress. Um, So as well as that, we saw um, those most most deprived, most disadvantaged backgrounds uh, going into university on an increase as well. And I thought that was very, very heartening, as well as the the nursing numbers I, I mentioned previously. Um, I mean, for me, obviously, uh, we're using Clearing Plus for the first time in Clearing this year. And, um, you know, the use of that is very encouraging in terms of both uh, learners, applicants using it and having positive experiences, but also it being a positive experience for universities who are looking either to get more people onto a specific course or actually to use some criteria to get diversity on their course and particularly bringing disadvantaged students in, perhaps in that simd uh, quintile. Um, I think there was lots of signs this week uh, from Scottish results about what the focus might be next week but also what the behaviors might be uh, next week and so um, hopefully we'll get some time to explore that through this um, podcast but i think particularly for me um that entry rate will be something to watch for in terms of overall uk 18 year olds um i think uh, Particularly, uh, widening participation in its broader sense, and um, perhaps those from most disadvantaged, um, deprived backgrounds going into those most selective institutions will be something uh, to watch. Um, and use of contextualised offers. And you know, me and Sally have had lots of conversations about this in the past, and, and where Scotland are on this um, compared to the rest of the UK. And certainly, we will be encouraging that flexibility from universities and colleges, given that they know a lot more about a student than just the grades. They know their, you know, elements of their background. They have used amount of rich data in. personal statement. Um, So, I'd expect use of that as we move forward. So, yeah, a very different year, um, but lots of positives, I think, this week that also bode well for the rest of the the clearing uh, period.
3: And uh, Sally, uh, as Claire alluded to, SQA has come under quite a lot of fire for for downgrading thousands of uh, students' predicted grades when it came to the, the moderation. Um, and the criticism being that this, is, this has been skew against uh, young people from low, low-income backgrounds. Can you talk us through what's going on here?
0: So first of all, I, uh, overall, I do think it's great that we are seeing that people want to go to university and they still want to, to go to university. And I think that is the headline message. It's a record entry rate for Scottish domiciled 18-year-olds. I think we have to keep in view the fact that What we've seen is that there is this year an increased pass rate in hires and the higher pass rate has increased for the most disadvantaged pupils. And there are, as Claire said, more young people from disadvantaged backgrounds being admitted into a a Scottish university or college. So that's up to nearly 12 percent. But yes, in terms of moderation, um, what we're seeing is is it does seem that there's been really clearly a disproportionate downgrading compared to upgrading. So 93% of grades have been changed down and 6% have gone up. And that indicates that the SQA thinks that there was overestimation of candidate potential by teachers, and this is bound to generate quite a lot of appeals. And it does look on the face of it as if students from the least advantaged areas have been disproportionately more likely to have had their grades lowered because of the focus in the process on school attainment attainment, rather than individual attainment in achieving the calibration for the moderation. So those high level points need to be balanced off against each other as the appeals process works through. And, you know, we must never forget that these are individuals' lives and careers that we're talking about here.
3: And Debbie, there's been a lot of political heat on this issue. Does it point towards uh, what we might see next week?
0: Uh, potentially. I mean, I, th- I think
2: this this kind of political furore is really interesting because one of the things we've seen is lots of MSPs kind of um, becoming outraged on behalf of their constituents, which of course is, their, is, is part of their remit. But... Um, and, and you know, John, John's kind of sort of defending SQA to some extent, sort of saying, well, you know, we 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 had to kind of find a way. We couldn't just have all of the grades 20% higher than they were last year. You know, we need to maintain some kind of consistency despite the kind of the wider context and the challenges that we're all facing. I think, if anything, what this exposes people are saying this is this exposes the scandal of the SQA um, making 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 choices on the basis of school attainment. I think it would have been much more challenging for them to have made the choices on the basis of student demographic. So, um, if anything, it exposes the scandal of differential attainment and um, that you know and, and the way that that class and socio-economic background influences that and that's been a long-standing problem it's something universities work really hard to address and hopefully actually this this may um refocus minds uh, more, more widely on, on how we might begin to address these challenges I mean, can I can, can I ask actually um, Sally because um, one of the things obviously we've, we've been looking at uh, the work that Scotland's been doing at admissions and one of the features of that is the publication of minimum entry thresholds um, which you know which which uh, you know we'll talk about later in the podcast as sort of a, a, a sort of Rationale for that and why why that's kind of helps to contribute to fairness in the round, but does it create an issue this year? If if you know how much scope is there for universities to kind of use some of that contextual information to look at the individual student's uh, circumstances and to make a judgment about whether a student might still be qualified for entry even if they have been kind of you know they feel they've been moderated down unfairly? Is that something that can still go? Forward?
0: Yes, I mean I can I can talk about this primarily from my my own institution because everybody will have will have approached it differently. But the thing about um, contextual admission is that we have set minimum entry requirements for every course at every university um, calibrated in terms of what we think the minimum entry requirements should be for candidates who are um, contextually flagged. And in my own university, that will be a good half of the candidates who are applying. So that's a starter. But I think most universities also have very robust confirmation processes. Certainly at St. Andrews, all our candidates were contacted by us in advance of the results to supply us with any mitigating circumstances. Um, if they thought they would be affected. So we could say that each applicant would be treated individually. Um, And and from that perspective, really, not even one reject was released automatically without further consideration. And in terms of outcomes, every single near miss that we've had has been looked at by a panel um, in our admissions office. They've been looked at carefully and where possible they've been re-offered. So we've had a number of offer holders who narrowly missed out on their conditions. And in those cases, we will have offered them a supported entry pathway in year one so we to date have not really been as far as we can tell particularly affected by this controversy but I think you'll find that that kind of careful attention to individual circumstances will be reproduced right across Scotland's universities and
2: I think it'll go a long way to actually mitigate some of the sense of injustice that, that, that students are feeling because of course you know if, if the base if if the, and, and, it may, and it may help to kind of reduce the, the number of appeals if universities are being sensitive to, to some of those circumstances it's it, uh, you know students may may kind of decide to, uh, you know, rather than kind of waste, waste time going, going to appeal, if they're able to kind of take up a, a, a desired university place yeah. um, and you know, continue, continue on with their lives as planned, that, that'll I, probably really I, help.
0: I, I think that's right and, yeah, and I we think should we re- have to, to, yeah. to hope
4: that that will prevail. Yeah. yeah and we should remember that obviously the appeals process and grounds for appeal looking to next week are very different in Scotland and England and so it will play out very different in, in the existence of an autumn series um, in England, you know, so, so we, we might expect to see different behaviours next week in in that regard.
3: Mm. And Claire, this, this, this year we, we're seeing a rollout of, of Clearing Plus. Um, and how have you seen uh, that, that help um, unplaced students navigate their options so far?
4: Yeah. Um, so, we obviously opened Clearing Plus on the 6th of July when we opened Clearing. Um, we have had um, a huge appetite from both uh, universities and colleges, but also applicants. Um, as we sort of sit here, at, well, certainly by Close Play Tuesday, um, the figures were around 26,000 courses in, in Clearing Plus, And um, we had a significant number, around 5,000 Um uh, applicants who've expressed an interest because that's the process they go through before a match, um, which says that there's a huge appetite for it. And, you know, a number of case studies um, giving really positive feedback on that process. I mean, I think the thing that I would encourage universities and colleges to do in using Clearing Plus, and I, I spoke to an institution just earlier this week, um, is some of the criteria that are available. So you might want to have some courses that have no criteria, but equally, you might want to have some courses where you're saying, actually, for the diversity of the course, um, you know, we are looking for those from um, sim, you know, certain SIM categories or, or Polar Quintile 1 in England, you know. And so um, using those criteria to get that diversity on on the course, I think is important. But yeah, so far, so good and great to see how customers are responding to it. You know, to have a personalised matching uh, service and to work so well over the
3: last few weeks is really encouraging. Is, is it complicated, though, this year by um, the fact that some students may not feel they've got the grades that, that reflect their potential?
4: Um, I think, um, you know, as we, it, it is going to be. I mean, one of the things that we've really ramped up over the last four months, and, and some of you uh, listening will be aware of this, is um, the whole rich content around information advice and really trying to reach students in a way that is meaningful to them. And I think that the time uh, next week, this week, uh, for having uh, ways that engage particularly young people is really, really super important because they have a set of decisions that perhaps in a normal year uh, would have been slightly more straightforward. So, you know, the idea of an autumn uh, series in England, um, you know, whether the calculated grades affect, uh, reflect rather what they think they should have got. Um, and so how having you know, the Facebook Lives where you have hundreds of thousands of students engaging real time with experts, I think is really, really important. So, so, I agree with you, Mark, there is a more complex set of decisions, but if we can, between universities and UCAS, support them in a way that keeps them engaged, um, I think that they will they will feel that they are in the best hands uh, next week and, and thereafter. Um, I think having tools like Clearing Plus, um, you know, somebody asked me just last week, you know, are you, are you glad you launched Clearing Plus this year? Actually, I think it's really timely for Unplaced students. It gives them that potential to be personally matched, um, which I think, um, you know, everybody's nervous about new things uh, amid the, the, the pandemic. Um, but I think it's it's really timely and will benefit students uh, during the course of the next few weeks.
3: Right. So far, university has not seen a significant drop off in expected demand uh, supported by uh, UCAS research data. But they, of course, they've been working around the clock to prepare for all eventualities. Uh, and we know clearing is going to be uh, particularly tricky. And we've, we're seeing uh, multiple media stories now about uh, the possibility of a less than ideal student experience awaiting for is in particular, when they when they arrive at university, Sally, I'm, I'm keen to get from you what signals you're you're picking up from prospective students about how they're making these sorts of decisions, and and I guess how you're preparing for that.
0: Yes, yeah, so all the signs at the moment continue to be that students want to show up at university for us and for all the universities that I'm in touch with numbers look pretty good across all fee statuses. Remember that um, for this year, anyway, home fee status in Scotland is EU as as well as Scots. And they're looking good in terms of of both applicants and now acceptances. And while we're at it, actually, Mark, um, in terms of returners as well as freshers, we shouldn't just think about this, I think, in terms of admissions and and applicants. Um, But as you said, universities, including my own have been le- leaving nothing to chance we have really significantly increased our conversion activity with offer holders trying to secure the, the 2020 entrant cohort and our admissions teams our academic schools are indeed working around the clock for what is effectively about the sixth month running so we've been doing one-to-one virtual meetings with applicants in all time zones we've been doing talking head events ask me anything sessions live chat conferences um, live q a with academics sessions with student services, sports, careers, etc. We also do what in St. Andrews are known as Bajon events for freshers, which this year has meant virtual receptions in, in the US and in India. And all of these are designed to establish a strong sense of relationship and connection with incoming students, which is important. But they also address the fact that we recognise that students will this year be particularly needing information Detail, reassurance, and guidance, and it's it's that job. It's our job to provide that, and it has been a full team effort. So we're all very exercised to convey that we thought about what the experience will be like, that it will be safe, that it will be supportive, that it will be academic, and where possible, it will be fun. And you'll probably want to ask me a bit more about that. And that's the more necessary because, of course, some students won't be starting with us in person. So um, uh, we are making it clear that any student, certainly at my university, entrant or returner who wishes to start remotely rather than in person, what we're saying is that they require permission to do so. That's how we're running it. It's, it's, it's a bar they have to cross, but they have to give us some information. Other universities may approach this slightly more permissively, but we can already see that some students will have to start remotely due to current restrictions, due to travel delay in processing visas or, or health restrictions, for instance. But across the piece, we've all been working really hard on getting ready for this and on thinking about the the different nature of the experience this year. I mean, I take your point, it is going to be different. But if you had the choice, stay at home and have a year in which you weren't quite sure what you were doing, or come to university, get on with your life, meet your new peer group, do something different, challenge yourself, even if you have to start remotely and then come later. Well, I think if I was um, going to university, I know what choice I would make. I, I very much hear what you're saying, Sally. <laughs> and, I, and I absolutely
2: don't fault universities who are kind of, who are really working hard to forge those connections with them. There, with the kind of incoming students and, and returning students as well, and and build that kind of sense of community and belonging. I mean, it's it's absolutely the right thing to do. But you know, if, if I'm coming from a sort of perhaps more sceptical place, I, I, you know, I might ask, what's the line between, building you know, building that sense of community pre arrival and supporting students to understand exactly what's what's going to be, what, you know, what's going to happen? And I suppose what you know our regulator would call pressure selling and and um, kind of inducing students to come when perhaps you know they you know but they, they may they may be unsure. Is there? Is,
0: is that a concern? I can see that it's an issue, but I don't think that it's a concern in in the sense that the students we are engaging with multiply are the students who have shown a real interest in the institution. And we are giving them a lot of information, but we're also giving them the, the choice to interact further with us if they want to. Um, so that's their, that's their choice to do so and in large part they do want to do so and I think this is in part we've all seen this I think through the pandemic that people have been really hungry for information for fact for detail for things to focus on so that they can make the informed cho- choices about, about what they wish to do where they want to go so I think you're engaging with a group of people who have already shown a willingness A to consider university and B to consider the university in question so this isn't about I think providing inducements it's about providing in- information and that is a very different and very necessary thing.
4: Yeah I mean I certainly think that the, you know the best universities, um, Sally talked about a relationship and a connection and that is often uh, formed from engagement rather than just one-way transmission so that you know students have an opportunity to ask questions about whether it's the social life or the academic experience um, and we know from the work we did with YouthSite during the course of lockdown actually students if they get that personalised engagement it will influence it's a major determinants of them choosing a firm choice. So I think there is something about don't underestimate the ability to make a choice and make quite a mature choice, um, even from students who are 18. Um, if they get good engagement, um, they they will um, take note of that and it will influence their decision making.
3: So everything we've been talking about so far today uh, is against the backdrop of, of wider planned reform to admissions uh, Debbie, what's going on?
2: Well, uh, at the start of lockdown, one of the things that happened was that the two parallel reviews of admissions that were going on in England were paused. Um, what we're expecting to see in the autumn is for those to ramp up again. But um, and, and, the, and the occasion for those, of course, was the Secretary of State's um, indication that he, he wanted to explore the possibility of some form of post-qualification application system and, and and look at admissions more generally in light of some of the fewer array around uh, unconditional offers and conditional-unconditional offers and, and, and the rest of it. Um, since then, we've so we're expecting those to come 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 back on back on stream in the autumn at some point, um, and 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 for and for there to be some kind of conclusion. But also in the interim, the university's minister a few weeks ago um, gave a speech that apparently seemed to suggest that the government may um, be having second thoughts about the uh, about widespread use of contextual emissions, which is of course until now it has been seen as a kind of important instrument in widening participation to higher education and the university's minister suggested that um, it, it, it that it was uh, it would create issues with standards so there's clearly going to be a big debate about admissions, about both about the kind of processes by which it happens, but also the values underpinning it. Um, and I think it's something that, uh, to some extent, the sector will feel like it needs like a hole in the head, given everything else it's dealing with. Um, but there's, been, and I'll obviously let Sally kind of speak a bit about what's been going on in Scotland, because I think it probably uh, produces some quite salutary lessons for for England as, as we get to grips with some of this stuff.
3: Um, Claire, UCAS has been at the centre of debates um, uh, about both of these these reviews, and clearly lots of resistance. Um, coming from the sector to, to widespread reform. But what, what good ideas have you seen floated?
4: Well, certainly, I think, um, the, the not presenting it as a binary debate is is the key thing for me. And when you get in that middle ground, there is some really interesting stuff. So, you know, it's not a no reform or post qualification emissions. There's a whole load of models in between the two um, that potentially wouldn't require the sort of upset in the secondary education landscape and taking of exams and marking exams, etc. That would address some of those issues around predicted grades and unconditional offer making that Debbie was referring to. And I think that's that's the interesting space. Um, now, whether that's a sort of post qualification offer making, where effectively a student does um, the application before, but we wait until qualifications to take offers. Um, That's one model in that middle space. I equally think um, it's it's important as we we reform the whole um, admissions to HE, as we consider the different groups of applicants. So, very often the debate has been focused on UK 18-year-olds, and actually, we have international applicants who have qualifications taken and given at different times. We have a whole cohort of mature applicants who already have the qualifications in large part. And so catering, whatever model comes out, whatever reforms we bring has to cater for those as well. And what we need to, I suppose, bear in mind is not having too many, there's always unintended consequences, but not having too many unintended uh, consequences from any model, because what we don't want to do is the very individuals that are most disadvantaged, that perhaps don't don't have as much teacher or parental support, um, then being disadvantaged and left alone uh, during a key decision-making point in the middle of the, the summer holidays, or conversely, being left for months and wondering what to do, and we have a drop out of those disadvantaged students that don't, don't get to HE. Um, and I think, you know, On uh, my, my final thing is on a journey to whatever we go to, be it post-qualifications of some sort, admissions. Um, I think there's a huge amount of reform we can do in the meantime. So, you know, self-release was last year. Um, That digitised that experience for applicants, made it easy for them. Clearing plus this year in terms of matching those unplaced applicants, which will benefit, I'm sure, massively um, our widening of participation. Um, Things like publication of actual entry grades, um, which again, I think will help um, those most disadvantaged. Is something we're working with the sector on to, to introduce in the 2021 cycle. I think the personal statement and reference Um, you know reforming those in some way um, i think is definitely something the sector has an appetite to do so making the reference much more personal to the individual than about the school is something we've had conversations about so i suppose you know i'm I'm interested in the the in-between of that binary no reform versus post-qualification missions what are the models in between and what's the reform we can do leading up to that that model
3: So Sally, you've been leading a group that explored emissions in quite a lot of detail in Scotland as part of the WP agenda. What do you think England can learn from that?
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting question, Mark, because the the English sector and the Scottish sector are in many respects so different from each other. Uh, But there are things that can be learned, I would say. The fact that the Scottish higher education sector is relatively small and contained, 19 institutions, has enabled it to organise and present very consistent messaging in a way that is beneficial both to candidates and to their advisers and their, their families. All Scottish institutions, for example, have now signed up to a fair admissions statement that applies to all learners and it sets out six principles for admissions and widening access. And in terms of the messaging that says we're consistent in the way we approach admissions, we've all got the same way in. And that again, that is just helpful in terms of I think reassuring and being clear with candidates and their advisors. And in the same spirit, but more ambitiously as of last year, we have agreed, and this was a huge thing to do, and we've now done it, to set minimum entry requirements for candidates who apply in a contextualised admissions context for every course at every institution. And what that gives is a consistency of approach across the sector, which again will be particularly helpful to candidates who don't readily know their way around applying to universities, so particularly candidates from disadvantaged backgrounds. And beyond that, we also now pledge to make an offer to every carer, experienced candidate who meets minimum entry requirements and again that is consistent right across the, the system. So the, the, the key messages are really trying to get consistency, trying to get consistency of approach and of of messaging with a particular attention to those candidates who are less familiar with university and how you apply to it. And I think there are learning for, for points there that the the English sector can take on board even though it is big and distributed because they're high level points about how you communicate and how essentially you you focus on making things as transparent um, and as consistent as they possibly can be for candidates in particular.
3: Debbie uh, this, this point about contextual omission seems really key do you think we should take seriously that uh, the implication that the, that the UK government is, is moving ahead moving away from the um, thinking about it in that way?
2: Well, I think, I mean, we should remember that universities continue for the moment to have autonomy over admissions. So I think, you know, where where universities have found that making uh, using contextual data in decision-making about admissions to be effective in achieving their access and participation objectives they will no doubt continue to do that. What I think is quite dangerous about the signal that um, the university's minister, Michelle donnellan was sending about kind of raising concerns around standards is, is that it, it takes away the possibility that the sector could come together to have a really meaningful conversation about achieving not necessarily uniformity of approach, but yeah, a degree of consistency. You know, the ability to kind of convene a conversation about what forms of data um, are most useful um, at, at sort of indicating disadvantage, what, 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 what contextual matters, you know, can usefully be taken into account to inform decisions about particular um courses or particular kind of uh, you know experiences that students may have had and, and that that you know that is in, that is incredibly productive when the sector does it as, as I think the Scotland case has shown and having a government that really basically doesn't seem to be supporting that agenda I think removes the kind of possibility that universities will be able to come together effectively to do that and that's where I think the problem will be. And I suppose it's also not inconceivable that you know, that we do see sort of an enhancement of regulation in this area, although I think that's probably a bit of a kind of scare case scenario rather than a, a you know a significant likelihood.
0: The other issue I would like to to raise here in this context, in the light of the the minister's comments, is also about what we think in this context um, success looks like. Um, you know the the concerns about well um, what does co- contextual admissions do for candidates? We're very much focused on it's not just about getting in, it's about getting on, um, and I think we need to to. Look Look at the the data here, and there is quite a bit of data available. And actually, ask some some fairly robust questions about: Do we expect success for those coming from contextualised admissions always to be absolutely equated with those who have not had that opportunity um, for levelling up in the same way? So I think it's there should be an evidence based um, informed debate about these issues, not a set of uh, assertions about them. And that's really where the sector has got to take this. There's quite a bit of data out there which Needs to be looked at properly, analysed and assessed in a in a reasonably mature way. I think also the thing for me, I worry about
2: a public narrative that suggests that level three results, normally meaning A level results, um, when you know in, when it's talked about in in, in these debates, is a you know, is, is the sort of sole and most robust indicator of future potential? You know, it, it is a very useful indicator, but it is one indicator. You know, and 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 you know, we've, we've done some work on the site with our friends at ATHE about the kind of robustness of predicted grades. And I mean, they're all in. You know, all, all these kind of measures are indicating something about the student, but of course, there's many other things that that you know come into play in making that judgment. And and I, and I worry about a public narrative that says, well, if you didn't get you know X number of X scores, you do not deserve a place at X university, because of course, it's much more nuanced than that.
4: And I think it's also about uh, and and. and you know the, the best universities technology colleges will do this is working back into the secondary education space because we know that these gaps in attainment start as far back sometimes as early years you know never mind different key stages along the way so the more we can do to close that gap earlier on than the point of 18 year olds I, I think the better um, and those that have got really good outreach programs will start to see that gap closing you know as far back as 11 or 15 years old rather than the point of 18. I, th- I mean I think Sally's point about um, the Scottish experience there's a couple of key things for me regardless of the sort of political landscape that absolutely the sector uh, as an entirety across the UK can take away there's some short term what would probably be called quick wins so the, you know the care experience candidates we must make um, movement on that in terms of uh, a position around that um, but also the transparency and language you know this is particularly for 18 year olds these are young people who are perhaps making you know the biggest decision they made in their lives so far and it can be quite a complex landscape to uh, you know to navigate. And so, the, the simpler you can make the language, the more consistent, um, you know, the more support and engaging support you've got around uh, those individuals. I think that the better um, that the better it is, particularly for those who haven't got, you know, parental support to help them navigate. So, I think regardless of the physical landscape, there's a huge amount the sector can do by joining up. So, both quick wins, but also longer term things around, uh, you know, language used and consistent language and key principles that help those students navigate.
3: And, what, and Claire, I'm interested to get your take on um the other part of the uk government's objectives which which is about um steering students away from from what they call low value courses um which basically we take to to, to mean um not delivering employment outcomes that they think are appropriate um how much do you think we, sh- we should be steering student choice in that way
4: I mean, I think it's again, it's a lot more complex than just low value versus high value courses. I mean, um, you know, a course at one institution will deliver very different experience, never mind an employment outcome for a student, than the same course at another institution. Um, and they don't always follow perhaps you know traditional high, medium, low tariff sort of you know routes. There's a, there's difference within those tariff groups and, and across courses. So I think um, caricaturing it in any way is is quite dangerous. Um, and I also think it's all it's all you know relative. Um, obviously people go to university into higher education for a whole range of different personal reasons so some of it is about a vocational qualification because they've always wanted to do that some of it is around yes perhaps a, a you know a graduate salary uh, some of it is about leaving home for the first time and learning how to be an adult <laughs> living on their own and making choices uh, without that sort of uh, parental cushion so um, you know learning to be independent um, so I, I think um, and then of course that's all around 18 year olds there's a very different set of uh, motivations for both mature and international students and so um, I think anything that caricatures low versus high value courses is in danger of oversimplifying it I would say and um, you know getting into different subjects at different institutions there should be challenge of course Um, I'm all supporting you know challenge about whether the right experience and the right value is given through a course but but not in those blanket terms.
1: Hello hello it's Jim here from the team Now you might recall that just before, I mean hours before Britain went into lockdown, uh, here at OneKiwi we were going to hold a Secret Life of Students event, Uh, and then of course lockdown happened uh, and and so on. So uh, the good news is on the 17th and 18th of September we are rescheduling and expanding the event. So... Uh, obviously, we're shifting it online, and as well as the you know the bulk of the sessions that we were going to run uh, back in March, we've got some extra sessions too. So there's all sorts of fantastic content at this conference that is focused on the student experience. Uh, what institutions can do to respond to what we know about the student experience, what's really going on with the student experience, uh, and how institutions can respond in an age of COVID? We've got all sorts of fantastic stuff. So, um, a look at all of the things that we learned last year about um, students and the student experience in terms of research. Uh, we'll be talking to Nicola Dandridge from the Office of Students about where regulation goes next. We'll be looking at fairness and safety, obviously safety is a really important contemporary issue right now, international students, um, non-continuation, which we think, you know, dropout is going to be the big policy issue of uh, the autumn and winter for obvious reasons. Uh, keeping students engaged online how do you do that how do you do student partnership both at a sort of course level and institution level in an age of covid and free speech pandemic politics and the student experience where will all of that go next an essential event if you're working on policy or delivery for students inside higher education for more detail uh, and to join us uh, online on the 17th and 18th of september just pop along to wonky.com forward slash events and you'll find all the details there
3: and finally, I think we need to talk about w p uh, widening participation because it clearly looks different this year. Um, WP teams have done what they can remotely during lockdown, but there's been lots of pre-application activities like summer schools that, of course, couldn't have gone ahead um, this year. So what do you think all of this means for university missions in the year ahead, Claire? Um,
4: I suppose the first thing to say is I think it's not just about the 2021 cycle. I think, you know, the pandemic has far-reaching consequences, probably nearer to five years than just one year. But in terms of um, the year ahead, you know, as we know at the moment, you know, the consultation from Ofgore. Came out earlier this week and doesn't indicate at this moment any particular change in structure of next year. Um, so I think that is helpful because I think uh, the more normality and stability we can bring to next year for students, uh, the better. Um, I do think, and we've done a lot of uh, survey work with what are currently Year Twelve, it will be Year Thirteen students uh, next year. Is that you know they've gone from uh, probably the three or four weeks before term closed uh, mid end July, not having you know any <laughs> teacher. Uh, contact in any way at least a third of them we know had no teacher contact in any form so feeling uh, uh, you know very worried and anxious to having a little bit more as those uh, first weeks in July kicked in um, and so feeling more supported. Um, we've certainly done a huge amount in terms of things like lesson plans and stuff to, to, to teachers to try and get them back on track in those last few weeks in July. Um, I I, my, I go back to we have to as they go into year 13 provide them with really really um, engaging material to get them excited about their next step in life Um, and um, that's a responsibility of us at UCAS it's also a responsibility of individual universities the sector as a whole Um, and let's not kid ourselves that is not going to be in the usual way that we might do that so the idea of busloads of students turning up to um, events certainly for you know for for the the next few months um, is is very difficult to see so how do you make a, a much richer offer around a virtual experience? experience that's high quality, um, that feels different from perhaps a face-to-face event, how do you make an open day feel very, very different, Um, how do teachers support students they might not be seeing uh, as much of the time as previously or might have to get up very quickly up to speed around an October 15th application deadline and similarly for January the 15th. So, I think there is something about us thinking of this as a a multi-year problem that we need to just all up our game on and and think about the information advice we give teachers as well as students because teachers we know are the most brilliant conduit to get to those uh, students um, but particularly for those going into year 13 uh, thinking about how how we reach those in new and innovative ways um, but we're quite excited you know we've had a huge amount of work I always believe uh, don't try and do everything yourself you know work with partners and we've done a whole load of stuff with the BBC to try and get that content out there that teachers parents or students themselves will will, will inspire them you know for the next stage of their lives.
3: And, and Sally from, from university's end I'm, I'm interested in in what you can do to help support uh, this cohort of students, um, particularly to demonstrate their potential.
0: Yeah, I mean, because yeah, because there's a
3: pandemic going on, and it's yeah,
0: it's- yeah, quite. And it is it, it is it is so important this question, and I, I really want to endorse what Clara said and say that that universities need to to learn a lot from institutions that are sophisticated in the way in which they they engage with as Claire said that a high quality virtual experience so we're thinking a lot about this all of us you know there's online but there's also remote and real time which can be a a very powerful way of of giving the student the sense that okay you're not you know you're not here now but this is what it's what it's like so we've got to get sophisticated in reaching out through these virtual worlds we've also got to see the opportunities that they posit occasionally particularly for for students who might have found it hard to travel in any event giving them a a really powerful and positive virtual sense of what say universities in Scotland alike delivered with a, an even greater attention to quality than we might have done before is an opportunity that we we need to be able to to take. But beyond that, it's also very much about building confidence, building experience, giving students those and and potential applicants those way the ways in and that will involve a lot of building up of things like mentoring schemes and um, virtual summer schools and things of that sort. So there's a a huge amount of work uh, taking place of this nature. But of course, we've also got to think uh, about the sheer practicalities of those from disadvantaged backgrounds who won't necessarily have the equipment, the ready technical access that they need. And this is where universities need also to be working with schools to look at how they can help in in that respect as well.
4: We, we do know from students that the the most powerful inspiration for them, or to bring it to life, is talking to peers. And so, to Sally's point, you know, universities being able to put ambassadors, um, you know, we, we run the, the scheme with uh, with Unibuddy to to get that peer to peer contact. You know, this is what it is like to study this course at this university. This is the experience. These are the challenges. These are the opportunities. It is exceptionally powerful, and universities and their outreach
3: programs can do a huge amount in this space so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show or find the feed you need on wonky.com slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the next season of the wonky show drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to claire sally debbie and everyone at team wonky for making it happen and of course our partners ucas until next week stay wonky